You are listening to the Audacious Ecosystem, the show where we learn together what it takes to make an ecosystem great from the leaders in your organizations around us. Let's do this. Amazing. <laughs> well, <laughs> first up, thank you so much, Silvia, for being here. Really, really appreciate you taking the time for this. Thank you. And I've known you for a few years now. Like, it's been a while now. And I personally know that you have an amazing career. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> I know that. But maybe the people listening didn't yet get a chance to know how amazing you are. Would you mind letting us know um, what is it that you do? How do you introduce yourself? All right, so Andre, thank you very much for the invitation. When it comes to assessing how amazing my career is, I think it's always a good measure to ask my family if they know what I do, and they will tell you, uh, mm, I know she's doing something smart, but we have really no idea what she's doing. Since, uh, since I became a professor uh, at the university three years ago, everyone is like, phew, she's a professor. If you ask them what she's teaching, they have no idea, right? <laughs> so my career is amazing and fascinating from my point of view and maybe your point of view. <laughs> um, just to tell you uh, very briefly, I am a researcher. That's, mm -hmm. my, that's my profession. I do applied research mostly, and I do applied research in social sciences. Mm. What this means basically is that I have a background in political science. I did my BA, MA, and PhD in political science, but during my MA and then during my PhD, I focused and I specialized mm -hmm. in research methods. And in my PhD, I specialized in network science. So based on these educational skills, I was empowered really to start doing applied research in the area of data analysis. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the network science approach allowed me to do uh, network analysis in organizations. So what I do now is basically I'm training other people, professionals and, and students and uh, other professors in the methodology of applied social network analysis or applied network science. I also do consulting in companies based on you know, how to use their social capital, let's say, uh, in order to build resilient organizations. Uh, or I do that in civil society with the same approach, but uh, less structured, I think. And I do research. I analyze broad ranges of data from public procurement data and I look at public procurement networks and I try to understand how corruption gets institutionalized across different countries, across different markets and sectors. Um, I also um, yeah, the map, for example, civil society uh, and their mobilization around, let's say, um, crisis situations mm -hmm. such as the pandemic or natural disasters or responses like that from the civil society. I also look at how money flows in different, you know, inter-organizations, uh, how people flow between organizations. I look at migration networks and, and basically any kind of ecosystem because, you know, this is what we will be talking about today. I like to map ecosystems and I do that with a very systematic approach with uh, being very curious and always with having in mind how can we improve them. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot, and that's fascinating. But let's pick it apart a little bit. First up, the part where you are a scientist. Given your experience in science, in network science, and dare I say, ecosystem science, can you maybe tell us a little bit about the basics of the science of ecosystems? So the basics of network science are the following. We're basically looking at nodes, and nodes can be anything. They can be people, they can be concepts, they can be organizations, they can be countries, Mm -hmm. and how they are connected to one another through different types of connections. Connections can be information flows, Mm -hmm. interactions of any kind, uh, contracts, um, anything that flows in between people, organizations, and even that connects different, uh, different uh, concepts. So whenever we are able to connect all of these at a large scale, we are basically talking about looking at an ecosystem. The ecosystem is very interesting to define. You can define an ecosystem from very different points of views. So the boundaries of the ecosystems are always very important. Are we talking about the internal ecosystem of an organization? Are we talking about the external ecosystem of an organization? Are we talking about the ecosystem of entrepreneurship in an urban space? Or are we talking about the ecosystem of, I don't know, cells in the body that, let's say, uh, help spread cancer? So all of these are ecosystems, but the, the, the boundaries that we put around them, the way we define the nodes, and most importantly, the way we define the links, defines what kind of ecosystem we are looking at. Because you can also have the same types of nodes part of different ecosystems. So for example, you can look at individuals that have friendship ties Mm -hmm. or economic ties or political ties or any kind of other ties. Each of these ties basically represent a different logic of action, Mm -hmm. a different interaction type. And you can separate those and say, okay, we're going to look at the political ecosystem, we're going to look at the economic ecosystem and so on, or you can look at the ecosystem in its multiplexity um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, identify and, and work with that. So that is how you would define and construct a particular ecosystem. Now, uh, complexity theory is one important theory that talks about these ecosystems. And what is really interesting, network science tells us that when we're looking at ecosystems, it's very interesting because it's hard to predict how they will dynamically evolve. We know for sure that a network or an ecosystem will continuously evolve. We don't speak about static networks. We can analyze static networks, but for sure a network is not static. So it's always evolving ties appear and disappear, nodes appear and disappear. Uh, But what is very interesting is that local level interactions that we can predict, and we have certain theories around why people form ties and why people engage in different, or organizations engage on -on one-on-one basis with other organizations. When we look at the ecosystem level, we start seeing emergent phenomena and we start seeing a different logic of organization that cannot be predicted from the, from the local level. And I think this is what, you know, this uh, um, multi, uh, multi-level approach mm-hmm. to ecosystems is very interesting. 
and makes it, I think, at the moment, the most complicated and complex scientific area to, to study. Um, because there's a lot of unpredictability, there's a lot of unintended consequences that local level behavior determines at meso and macro levels. But it's also fascinating to be curious about this because there's also a lot to learn. Fully agreed and I, I do fully uh, am on point with you to the fact that the multi-layered approach of an ecosystem is even more fascinating than just the snapshot of one ecosystem in particular. But you said something very interesting there. You said that an ecosystem, or at least I'm paraphrasing a little bit, an ecosystem is an ever-changing thing. It doesn't really last. And we can't really predict how it will change per se. We can maybe see some trends, but not necessarily predict where it will end up. But there's a science behind them, and I suppose that we attempt to do something at one particular moment in that ecosystem. Uh, given the ephemerity, uh, the ever-changing nature of the ecosystem, we usually take a snapshot at one moment in time and attempt to look at that. When we look at that snapshot of an ecosystem with a hat of a scientist, I wonder what are some tools in your scientific toolbox that you use in order to assess the snapshot of an ecosystem? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. And this is where network science or the approach to ecosystems basically differs from any other tools that we have in our methodological toolbox. Because if, for example, with normal traditional statistical approaches that are stochastic in nature, where you know that there's uncertainty in the system, right? We assume independence of observations when we assume normal distributions with the network approach. We don't assume that. We assume interdependence of observations and that the ecosystems are by definition not something very democratic. And we'll talk about this. Mm. But uh, uh, the first thing that... Uh, is different in this approach is that we don't focus on the number of the size of the ecosystem. We don't focus on the attributes of the nodes or the links in the systems, like let's say the gender, the, I don't know, political affiliation or all the other mm. things. But we focus on the mechanisms at work, the relational mechanisms at work. And we, if we are able as scientists to separate, to parse apart the mechanism, the endogenous effect, uh, the network effect, from an ecosystem, then this is something that we can replicate regardless of the equifinality of the ecosystem, right? Regardless of the fact that you have multiple ways to achieving a particular outcome. So when you said that, you know, um, we had like uh, ecosystems are changing and we don't, it, it's very hard to predict, but network science is actually about predicting. And the way we predict is uh, if we are able to understand causality, let's say, or causative effects in a relational way. So we are focusing on replicate, understanding the, the mechanisms. But that takes not only methodological tools, that takes very good theory. So for example, to, uh, when you look, even if you look at a static picture, you need to make, uh, you know, your, yeah, your, your approach should be, your theoretical approach should be about an understanding of the processes that lie behind that static picture. Mm. 
assuming that things are continuously changing, again, you're uh, isolating the mechanisms. And the mechanisms with network effects could be something like, let's say, one of the pervasive mechanisms in social networks, for example, is transitivity. Transitivity is the logic of a friend of a friend becomes my friend. So if A and B are connected and A and C are connected, at some point B and C will be connected too. This tri you know, closing of triangles is very um, naturally occurring and the, this transitivity basically leads to uh, the formation of communities. Communities themselves, they are conglomerates that offer a lot of familiarity and support for the members, but they can also, for example, breed uh, eco-chamber effects. They can track information. Information starts to travel uh, at a slower pace in the entire ecosystem because of the group effects. So, uh, you know, for example, one of the questions that comes uh, very often up with ecosystem problems is how do you make an ecosystem resilient? Right? What does that mean? Resilient? Yeah, it means uh, that it will survive different attacks different shocks in the ecosystem. So you remove random nodes, you remove random edges, and eventually it will be able to still self-organize. That's the, that's the very interesting thing. With, with network science, you can, uh, you can measure the topology of the ecosystem, the infrastructure, exactly how it looks like. And then again, if you have a, a quite enough interconnected uh, ecosystem, then that becomes a more resilient um, ecosystem because if you create random shocks to it, it will not dismantle the entire structure. However, if you can calculate who the most important nodes are or what are the most important links, and then you attack those, you are for sure going to dismantle the entire ecosystem in fewer steps <laughs> and uh, with much more efficiency. So it depends how you, from what perspective you look at this and, and who uses these tools. Um, but in principle, you can also use uh, the mechanisms that you understand from the ecosystem in order to build or to destroy. Interesting. And obviously, if your point is to build an ecosystem, then your goal would be to build a resilience, meaning making sure that if a node exits the network, not a lot will happen, hopefully. But to your point earlier, and to also add on the idea that maybe not everybody listening is a scientist and not everybody will actually go in and actually calculate uh, the things that we might calculate, but for a non-scientist, you talked about communities, which I think is uh, the most interesting aggregating factor that a non-scientist might look into. What's one very actionable thing you would suggest they do from a network science or an ecosystem science perspective to help out their communities? Just one thing they could execute after they listen to this episode. One thing, very actionable thing that you can do is think about your role in your existing social networks. And I don't mean here necessarily the social media networks, right? The, the Facebooks and all the likes. I mean, in your actual interactions with people. Um, there are countless studies that say that the people around you will influence your potential. 
by if you surround yourself with negative people that's a very basic example right mm -hmm. if you surround yourself with negative people you know at some point in time you will give in to that way of thinking if you surround yourself with positive people again you'll do the same thing so peer pressure is a real thing <laughs> and the composition of the people the homogeneity or heterogeneity the diversity of the people how little diversity you have or how uh, much diversity you have in your social connections meaning people that think differently than you that can determine um, your openness to the world so to say your openness to uh, realize your potential so looking a little bit or being mindful about the people you surround yourself with understanding what can be toxic in your life what can be uh, positive in your life and and my suggestion overall would be surround yourself with people who respect you, who um, uh, believe in you, who appreciate you, who support you. So basically people who are positive for you. And then again, one of the most cited papers in the social sciences is a, is a paper from 1973 by Mark Ranovetter about the strength of weak ties. And basically what the theory says is that if you're looking for a job, you won't find about that information from your closest friends. You will find out about this information from acquaintances. Meaning that if you surround yourself in communities with people who are very similar to you, all of you will be more or less uh, open to the same kind of information. So you will get yourself stuck in environments in which you, are, you agree with everything your friends do, in which you have access to the same information that they do, and so on and so forth. And that, again, blocks you from getting outside. So the advice would be try to reach outside of your bubbles. Always try to reach outside of your bubbles um, to get to to have yourself uh, receive information, diverse information, and that actually, you know, since we're talking to young people, that has very actionable insights for how you should curate your social media presence. For example, the problem with these theories is that they are exacerbated in the online because of the platform effects. On Facebook, it's so easy to unfollow and unfriend everyone, right? There is an app, if you want, I can recommend it at the end of the uh, episode, where you can measure the homogeneity of your Facebook friends. And what basically probably would not be surprising from my point of view is that, you know, more than 90% of your Facebook uh, feed is very congruent, is very similar to your way of thinking. Which means that you get you you become part of this Facebook mm -hmm. chamber where um, you hear the same things, you agree with the same things, you you do not see anything that doesn't resonate with you, and that creates a lot of polarization in the online. So one thing that you can do is to train your newsfeed algorithm um, intentionally to to open up your. Uh, your Facebook networks towards information sources that are diverse. And that goes into who do you follow? Not only people, but also um, news media outlets, uh, uh, accounts of organizations that are important to you and so on. And as a general recommendation, obviously, is use your social media in order to, to have access to the best top information, regardless of your field of interest. Do less of the influencer approach, do more of the objective um, uh, data sources, no matter what's, what's your uh, area of interest and expertise. So if I may just attempt to rephrase that, it could all be summed up with the phrase, 
birds that flock together, birds of a feather flock together, but also birds that flock together become of a feather. Yes, absolutely. And this is actually, it has a name. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mechanism at work, right? It's called homophily. Homophily is the like of a like, and, uh, and you can have different types of homophily. You can have institutional homophily. So, for example, you become friends with people you go to school to uh, together. I mean, it's more likely that you'll become friends with them than anybody else, right? Institutional homophily is something that we are uh, sort of, you know, societally <laughs> uh, doomed <laughs> to, to have. Uh, but you can also have gender homophily. You can have all sorts of other homophily. There's one thing that I think could be really useful to just dig a little bit deeper in. Uh, you said to think about your role in that community. What does that exactly mean? Mm -hmm. Well, for example, and now we go from the meso level, the community level, mm -hmm. we go to the role level, to the individual level. So at the individual level, what you can do is to assess what is it that you intermediate? Mm -hmm. All of us actually play uh, an in-betweener role at some point in time, right? We are part of a social group at work, a social group like your family, your neighborhood, your, I mean, you know, you can ha you have multiple groups that you are part of, and you are perhaps the only one <laughs> who is bridging among all these communities. Or even at school, you are part if you do, do you know, two programs at the same time. And in general, in life, you will find yourself at the intersection of multiple groups. If you become aware of this position, there's different things that you can do. First of all, each of these roles and positions come with advantages and disadvantages, so for example, or like uh, strengths and limitations. The in-betweener role in particular, the strength is that you have a unique capacity to innovate. If you're a student who's doing interdisciplinary work, right? Like you, Andre, are, right? So you, you, you are interested in economic stuff, you're interested in social stuff, you're interested in business stuff. You are an interdisciplinary student. So you have a unique capacity to bridge among otherwise unconnected or little connected things in a novel way because you're the only one who has this uh, diverse perspective. But you need to be aware of that, right? If you're not aware of this uh, position, then it can become even the other way around where it's frustrating. You do not identify with either an economist, either a business person, either a social scientist, right? It can be a place of tension. You feel overwhelmed from all these different stretching areas of your life. Your family drags you, your friends drag you, you always have to make decisions and, you know, uh, like, please, this or that, and it's... It can become also on the other hand side, it can become a place of burnout, a place, a place of frustration, a place where you do not feel like you belong. So again, depending on how you view, uh, and, and obviously, I mean, these things uh, mature on, uh, alongside with you, um, and you learn from these positions all the time, but I think you are uh, better off if you, if you are conscious about these roles or not. You can become, you know, you can assume a role of leadership, you can assume a role of a bottleneck, you can assume, it depends, yeah, like, uh, if you see opportunities and constraints along the way in your social relationships. So, if you just maybe don't feel like you necessarily fit into 
one particular square into one particular role, maybe, just maybe, you might be a bridger, somebody that connects different communities and is the influence point between a lot of different communities and types of ecosystems. But on that note, that person has a very intriguing, not only role, but maybe responsibility at the same time. At that level, you also have a position of leadership on the influence of between the different ecosystems. Using that perspective, um, you also have an influence on the future of the ecosystem. Uh, but in order to influence it, you, again, we have to make a snapshot. But in order to get to that snapshot, we first have to do something called the mapping of the ecosystem. Correct? Yeah. Okay, okay. Maybe share with us a little bit what is the ecosystem mapping and why does it matter? This. So I don't know how many people know this, but Romania is one of the most successful countries in the world in the fight against corruption. So we have put, yeah, we have put a lot of uh, high-level politicians and business people behind bars on charges of corruption. We know that in Romania, corruption is an endemic problem. Um, however, no, despite all the success, the corruption in Romania has not gone down uh, systematically. Um, and then the question is, well, why did that happen? My, uh, well, I wrote a PhD thesis about it, but, <laughs> yeah. but my short answer is that basically the way we've been doing anti-corruption was without the mapping. And we were using this subjective, individual-driven, like subjective uh, uh, method of uh, starting investigations into corruption, which is the whistleblower account. Now, the whistleblower account, meaning, you know, people like there's somebody who anonymously comes out and says, look, there's a corruption act happening in the organization or whatnot, and then the anti-corruption agency goes and investigates. Um, the problem with this instrument is not that it's not valid. I think it is. Mm -hmm. It's very important. But it cannot be the method by which we do the mapping. Because by definition, whistleblower has, uh, you know, we're talking about covert networks, so things that su are supposed to be secretive, right? Mm -hmm. So corruption networks, uh, an individual who is part of a corruption network sometimes might not even understand their role within the network. And we have, generally speaking, cognitively speaking, very limited abilities to predict, you know, two or three steps away from us, like what is the intricate web of connections. So... By definition, you cannot do that. You cannot map systematically the machine, the corruption machine, with whistleblower accounts. They're great to validate corruption, but I mean, they have been used in Romania, at least they have been hijacked as a politicized uh, instrument. So people very strategically use it with very strategic purposes and so on. So given that uh, anyway, corruption happens in Romania a lot, obviously the anti-corruption agency fined a lot of people, but it couldn't dismantle the mechanisms corruption and the, the machines of corruption. So then my proposal was basically, let's first map the ecosystem trying to use um, more objective data. And I didn't go, I didn't have to go any further than just look at public data in the form of public money flows, so public procurement contracts. So I mapped, I started to map the, the this data is available, you can download it from, uh, from a website, 
it's um, Europe is actually the best in terms of uh, providing standardized public procurement data that you can analyze. So I started to connect uh, the public institutions that uh, uh, issue public procurement contracts with the businesses that want those contracts. And on the console, the, the nodes became the two types of organizations and the links between them became the contracts. And for each contract, I used the, uh, the corruption risk index, which is a, it's a composite measure that has 14 sort of red flags about the public procurement process at all the three levels that was uh, developed by Mishi Kasekash and his co-authors at Cambridge University. And then basically for each uh, uh, link, I would have let's say an orange color if it's high corruption risk and the green color if it's low corruption risk. So if you have a lot of these red flags or if you have clean behavior. And I started doing this systematically, uh, originally just for one country, but then I extended that to 28 countries plus the EU institutions, looking at more than 10 million contracts and the corruption risks associated with each contract. And what came out of this was something really interesting. The network structures were very different from country to country, but it could you could identify uh, the uh, countries where corruption is something easy to target and intervene upon, and the countries where it's completely very different. And guess what? Romania had the typical uh, uh, structure of a, of a hairball or of a very interconnected ecosystem. And this is where we're talking about resilience the good or the bad aspect of it, right? Because an ecosystem is just an ecosystem. But what flows through that, how you intervene upon that can be very different. Here, you have a very resilient ecosystem because all these organizations are interconnected in a web that just looks like a hairball with all orange and green all together. Meaning that if you do random shocks in trying to dismantle this with the whistleblower accounts, sure, you'll probably find something, but you will not be able to dismantle the corruption machine, and you might even do damage to the healthy part of the system. How? For example, you put, like it happened in Romania, you put heads of, let's say, county councils to jail on charges of corruption. Because the, institu the institution has a tradition of contracting sometimes clean, sometimes high corruption risk, when you do that, the entire administration freezes. Nobody wants to sign any document because they really don't know what are the rules of engagement without you know, that person telling them, ah, we should contract with these or we shouldn't contract with these, right? But if you use the tools of network science, you have now the map, the ecosystem mapped, you, have, you can have even you know, more detailed information that anti-corruption agencies do have. You can start uh, systematically breaking down the complex ecosystem into the top, you know, the rankings of the top connected nodes, the most important in-betweeners, the organizations that are closest and so on. So basically what I did with this information is that I, I devised this uh, very simple methodology of case prioritization where I said, looking at the influence of an organization within the ecosystem and then the corruption risk associated with their uh, contracting behavior, you can decide to target, you know, let's say the most influential high corruption risk ones to start the investigations from them. Or you can even look at the healthy part of the system and say, I'm going to look at the most influential ones with the lowest corruption risk and make them examples of good practice. 
So you can play with these tools in order to dismantle the bad parts and increase and support the healthy parts of the ecosystem. That was an absolutely fantastic and intriguing example, first of all. And uh, I urge everybody to check out your PhD thesis. It's an absolutely fascinating read. Um, but to the point of actually mapping the ecosystem, we have that snapshot. We want to obviously act upon it, and we do that snapshot in order to change something about the situation that it's in. Obviously, first to understand it, but afterwards, we want to do something about it. But maybe that's a great example to also touch on that point. But how do we actually measure the progress in the ecosystem? How often do we have to measure that? How often do we have to go back to the mapping in order to like know that something's changed or it hasn't changed? Or how do we even express some sort of change before we attempt to map it again to see if it had any sort of progress or even if we, it didn't have any kind of progress, if it actually hurt the ecosystem even further? How often do we measure? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. I don't think there's necessarily a you know, one-size-fits-all answer here because each ecosystem, depending on the rule it engages, can have different paces. One thing that I can tell you for sure as a political scientist is that if we have something to, if, it, if the ecosystem has something to deal with uh, organizations, and we're looking at the organizational level, we do encounter a lot of path dependency, meaning that the changes in the ecosystem happen rather slowly and incrementally rather than having these critical junctures that completely shift the way you're looking at things. Uh, I was looking, for example, at the ecosystem of business and political uh, organizations and, and uh, collaborations in the Hungarian market from 1986 until 2006, and I've seen these uh, big changes, let's say, every four years, five years in the entire ecosystem. So, you know, you do have time to start remeasuring. But I think, you know, if you have to deal with organizational ecosystems and trying to understand, I don't know, let's say partnerships among uh, um, yeah, boards of directors of a, an economy, then doing this annually would be nice, yeah, to have this annual timestamped data. Um, I also do, when we do this in organizations, within the ecosystem of an organization, we look at the social networks of employees then we basically redo the analysis about two years after we do the first mapping. Um, because again, with, uh, uh, depending also on the maturity of the organization, but with mature organizations, corporations in principle, the turnover is not extremely high so that you would expect a complete shift of the social networks. Plus you have this institutional design that regulates a little bit how people form, you know, social ties within organizations. So it's pretty much predictable. But still, you could you could have interventions that are uh, more soft in nature, and then and then you could measure, let's say, the uh, engagement of the people much quicker, uh, or the motivation of the the spikes in motivation of the people much quicker based on the interventions that you do. But in terms of uh, expecting a completely different network structure probably once every two years could be fine. 
if you're talking about a startup, then you might have a very different thing because there you have high turnover and then, you know, especially for talented people to hold them for a longer period of time is difficult. And then that's also one of the things that network science informs us about that highly talented people not only technically, but socially as well, they produce actually a lot of trickle-down effects in terms of um, the teams they work with. So then you might have these um, uh, yeah, lacks, uh, like uh, uh, motivation being affected at the entire team level and having you know two or three other people leaving. So there you might want to do it much more often. Um, you can also look at depending, for example, if you if you're if you're looking at email communication and you you want to understand a little bit the um, ecosystem of communication around like different clients. If your organization is outward uh, going, for example, then with email networks you can we actually typically measure it every three months, so every quarter or every six months, depending on the type of business. Uh, because there you can have interventions at the very personal level where you have uh, sort of KPIs that you impose on yourself. I want, you know, by the end of the quarter to be more client oriented or something like that. And that affects obviously your communication patterns through emails. Um, so, yeah, I think it depends a lot on the ecosystem. I think regular measurement is important for us to be able to track whether we have impact or not. There could be multiple ways of doing impact assessment. The network approach is one way, especially if we have some uh, objectives related to the, the structure of the ecosystem altogether. For example, stuff like, okay, originally we were configured as stars, disconnected silos, and in two years we really want to make it a more democratic, decentralized, uh, highly innovative organization. In that case, obviously, you need to measure that. But if you're if you're okay with the way your uh, organization looks like and the way your network looks like, um, then you can have much more targeted interventions, let's say, around involving or integrating newcomers, which you know is just a one part of measurement that you can do, and you can also assess that through qualitative methods. There's so many interesting things that you just said. But I want to move the conversation in a particular direction at the moment. And I think that's a very interesting point that you find yourself in, because obviously you do wear the hat of an academic, but at the same time you're not just an academic, and you have a very intriguing perspective with which you can also understand uh, from outside academia, how academia actually looks like. But before that, you said that uh, it obviously depends how often we have to measure progress. But I have to wonder, given, again, your intriguing position, what's the time horizon that you think about progress? Do you think about it like an organization, because you're part of... Uh, academia, or do you think it about it like a uh, leader, a young uh, person having great aspirations, which obviously you are? What's, what's your time horizon when thinking about progress or yourself? Uh, that's a very nice question, Andre. Thank you. I don't think anybody asked me this, but I do think about this quite a lot. And um, 
Well, I think it also depends on what are my objectives, so to say, right, with this knowledge. And I think for me, these are very much tied with like my, my life mission and my life goal, which is to create the world that is just, uh, you know, better uh, than the, the way I found it. And it's also obviously a very ambitious thing um, with very limited resources in order to, to do something like this, although I've oriented myself towards replicating multiplying these efforts so that you know I delegate to other people to continue this mission um, um, and there are many different layers here that I'm thinking about but in terms of an organization what I'm really interested in is uh, creating if there's none or there's very little of that or improving existing organizational cultures so the culture of the organization I'm part of and realistically speaking this is something that can be changed with systematic effort in, let's say, three to five years. It takes measurement, it takes programs, and it takes, you know, very specific measurable objectives. And it takes, obviously, the, uh, uh, the buy-in of the management of the organization, especially if it's a large organization to move things forward. But most of the interventions that we can do to better organizational cultures are free <laughs> and they're just common sense. <laughs> but again, you know, as a consultant, I realize that many organizations at some point lose track of, uh, of uh, you know, their implicit um, uh, behaviors that sometimes just need to ma be made explicit. When it comes to the society in which I live, it most likely takes more, but I wouldn't go more than, let's say, seven years as a benchmark for observing a systematic um, um, improvement of civil society with, again, um, creating programs that can support interconnectivity of the ecosystem in different ways or, or more collaboration or, you know, things like that. But I think funding, for example, different civil society types of activities, projects, or things like that, programs that create community ecosystem, uh, community resilience, we should be able to see uh, uh, lasting effects. Because again, with the network approach, your focus is on the mechanisms that can be replicated, not the attributes of. We don't need like a community, uh, like, uh, sorry, an organization of this type or a person of this type. No. What we need is a mechanism through which we can provide collaboration, innovation, or spark, yeah, enable collaboration, innovation, and other things like that within the community. And then whoever engages in this would be able to move this forward. So I think seven years, yeah, realistically speaking. That means typically, you know, one big large project of like four years, and then a follow-up of about three years to fundament the changes. Uh, when it comes to international things, um, I think there the, 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 the change comes from providing large, uh, so, pro, so from, from providing technology and large scale tools. For example, I was thinking about the, the work in the anti-corruption thing. Um, now, the methodology of um, looking at social networks, basically, in, in the economy is implemented in the, with the um, uh, Competition Council in Romania in their big data platform, which is the first kind of 
big data platform for um, you know looking at anti-competitive behavior in Europe. But any uh, competition council in any country could benefit from this systematic approach to understanding ecosystems of anti-competitive behavior or even anti-corruption behavior and intervene upon. But without these large-scale tools that use technology, that use data, objective and subjective data, that use uh, a methodology to systematize all this complexity, they will not be able to effect change on a large scale. That's fascinating, but I want this to be as useful and as applicable as possible for uh, the listeners. The societal and transnational effects are absolutely, absolutely fascinating, but I think that's a little bit beyond the scope of an actual, applicable thing. So I'm gonna focus from what you said solely on the institutional side, where you said that the culture changes in an organization such as a university uh, somewhere between three to five years every three to five years. Um, maybe, again, with the perspective that you have, with the obviously fascinating uh, insights that you have, both as an academic and outside of academia, why is that? Why does it take three to five years? How does the ecosystem look such, a, such that the way to change it takes actually three to five years? Okay, now I need to make an amendment here. I'm talking about organizations that are, let's say, above like 20,000 people. And when you speak about large organizations, right, especially, these are complex, yeah, they're complex machines, <laughs> that it just takes a lot of time. And, and uh, corporations, not only universities, but corporations in general, but universities as well, they're very bureaucratic animals. So any sort of change, good or bad or whatever you're going to call it, is just going to take time. But the, the thing that takes even more time is behavior change. And that is a bottom-up, grassroots kind of thing, right? And I think in now in the 21st century, 2023, with the makeup of large organizations like that, I don't think people take the top-down approach very good anymore right so in order to actually have any effect with your the change that you want to impose on a large scale in the organization it just has to be uh it just has to be something that um values the people in the organization and that means identifying the uh, data or the instruments with which you can actually um measure what the people want <laughs> and how to work with that. Uh, if you just heard the break here, um, that's because uh, Sylvia's kid just came into the room and sh she's she's the sweetest thing imaginable. So um, ju ju just to take back the conversation, uh, a grassroots approach takes obviously longer to do because what you're trying to do is obviously change normality. You're not trying to change the rules, you're rather trying to change what is viewed as normal, which does take a while. But obviously in the year 2023, it's a little bit more um, useful, so to say, rather than just trying to change the rules and hoping for the best that top-down top uh, change actually happens. But 
Why? There's one other thing that I would add here, Andrei, is the fact that if you want to change, I mean, you know, I've been I've been looking into all sorts of, and I, I'm embedded into this global community of change management experts and organizational development experts. And basically what we've arrived, we, the conclusion we have arrived at is that the only innovation in this field is to actually be able to map the trust networks within organizations. Because if you are not able to map the trust network, so who trusts whom, right? Or, or what are the areas where people actually feel comfortable at work and comfortable with the people they work with, um, it, it will just take longer for behavior change to happen. The studies show us that the best, you know, value-based, culture-based transformations happen when uh, the energy is caught within the system from the other people, the motivation, the inspiration, the best practices, the knowledge sharing, the know-how sharing just comes from other people. The, the more you trust them, the more, the quicker these things will happen. So if you don't do these, and actually there's no other method to which you can do this, then the network science approach. But I was having exactly that conversation with a friend from Australia just a few days ago, and we were talking about uh, measuring trust in a network. And the point of the conversation that we arrived to was first, we don't necessarily agree how to measure trust and what that even means at the end of the day. Uh, maybe you have an insight on that from the literature and the actual science of measuring trust. But also at the end of the day, you don't, it's not binary, I trust you or I don't. It's a very wide spectrum, which it has very intricate, very many intricacies. Because maybe I trust you to order some Chinese food just because you have more insights into that, but I wouldn't trust you to, I don't know, go skydiving with you, or I wouldn't trust you to do my taxes. I would trust you in another field. Uh, maybe you have more insights into that, but how how do you measure trust? Well, that's a very good question, but as a social scientist, I mean, to me, that's the first and most important thing to actually get straight on, right? Is how do we conceptualize trust and how do we operationalize it? And you can have here, there's a range of options, depending, of course, on what is your focus. But let's say if we are talking about a, a, a organization, like for-profit organization, uh, trust could be trust in the formal duties, that we have all to one another or the informal uh, duties, not duties, but like support that we offer one another. The way we do this in practice, for example, is with a questionnaire of 18 questions that look at five different dimensions that only one of these questions is something like, who do you consider to be trustworthy when it comes to discussing personal problems with? So it's a very specific thing. But then all of the other uh, questions, they still measure trust, but they measure a different kind of trust. So for example, who do you go to for advice when it comes to your work? Who do you, um, who you, do, per who do you perceive as being um, you know, uh, able to uh, speak about the uh, opinions and challenges of others? So there's a combination of these perception questions and factual questions related to actual behaviors that tell us directly or indirectly uh, how much of, a, of a, an ecosystem of, of trust and reliability and accountability we have at work. 
and it has questions related to your professional capabilities and questions related to your social informal interactions. So it's a multidimensional concept that you measure. But for example, when I try to do this in civil society, uh, I'm much more pragmatic and I say, let me see who are, who are your partnerships with, who do you collaborate with, who do you actually have an agreement on a particular project that helped you with you know, logistics or communication or something like that. That's an institutional type of trust. And the more institutions uh, you know, collaborate together, the more actually they trust the flow of resources, the, uh, the time they put into it, the effort they put into it, and the fact that they have you know, similar goals um at least very punctually that's one way of measuring trust and just to touch on quickly on uh, what you just said if we obviously get to the point where we agree to have a partnership that means we agreed on a lot more things before we actually formalize an actual contract of any sorts and we put it into writing that i trust you enough to do this thing together so yeah, that has inherent um, trust behind of it because that's a long process that takes a lot more steps of trust. And that's fascinating. I think that's a great exercise to also do in our own lives, just to see what's our trust networks, both whom we actually trust in our lives. And especially, especially if you're trying to build any kind of brand for yourself, who trusts you and on what? Because you may be a very, those two, those two types of networks may be very different. Uh, but I, I, I just really want to uh, touch upon this subject of academia because, again, you have a very insightful role to play in academia. And I just want to maybe get a little bit of a better understanding of why, well, obviously, uh, there's a reason why academia is so bureaucratic. But what, first of all, what does the ecosystem of academia even look like? Okay, uh, well, there's multiple layers here, so it yep. depends on which layer we're looking at. There's the northern, uh, you know, hemisphere and the southern hemisphere <laughs> ways of looking into academia, which is, True. you know, more interconnected web of mobilities of intellectual, you know, mm -hmm. uh, brain power of projects like resources and things like that. While in the south, in the global south, you have less of that, more even in Eastern Europe as compared to Western Europe. Um, if you look, however, let's say in Romania, there's different ways of looking at that. One of the ecosystems that I've been looking at uh, was the recruitment flows between Romanian universities. Hmm. So basically what I was interested in were, well, we have a... Um, we have demographic problems with, uh, with students in Romania. We have a huge brain drain and we have uh, uh, negative uh, natality, like, um, how do you call it? Natality in English? Um, <laughs> I actually do not know the term. Right, I mean, anyway, so uh, the, the, the rate, rate of uh, babies being born, yeah? Yeah, birth rate, yeah. <laughs> in birth rates, yeah, there we go. So the birth rate is uh, uh, decreasing drastically, mm -hmm. the, uh, old population ages increases drastically plus we have a lot of migration outside Romania uh, for many reasons and it, it keeps on going like the average age keeps on being lower and lower mm -hmm. 
which means that this is a threat to the university's financial financial system. So how we finance universities right now is based on uh, head of student, student head, which sounds very medieval, right? Um, so per person, so to say. Um, so in a few years, we can become uh, extremely vulnerable as universities if we don't become more competitive in certain ways. So the first thing I was looking at is the vulnerabilities of these universities in the way they recruit, because many universities are very regional or local in nature. So they recruit mm -hmm. only from you know, the geographical uh, region that they have around them. But other universities still, they attract from all over Romania and from even other universities uh, within Romania. Um, so I think, you know, looking at this ecosystem, you can very clearly pinpoint the universities that are very vulnerable because of the narrow way they do recruiting uh, and the universities that are in a re resilient ecosystems or, or smaller ecosystems where if something happens, if there is one flow uh, drying out or something like that, there's still reorganization that can happen quickly with limited resources and still be able to function very well. Um, so looking at this ecosystem was actually very useful in order for us to understand how to do competitive recruiting, where to invest resources in order to recruit competitively, but most importantly, this inner look at what kind of programs we offer and how competitive they are for the people we recruit. And especially how do we, what kind of programs, what kind of um, yeah, academic skills and like how do we differentiate ourselves basically in this, uh, in this uh, pool of different universities, uh, maybe in a competition also with other regional universities outside the country. So how it looks like now, I think it's a, it, it has these multiple poles, so to say. The only more or less resilient pole is the Bucharest hub, because it has, um, you know, as the capital city, obviously, like any capital city, it will attract people from all over the place by default. And, and there are many universities, there are much more than you can find in, you know, I mean, the, the difference in the population size between Bucharest and all the other cities is huge. So obviously you'll have fewer universities in, in the other, but like Timisoara has five different universities, right? Uh, but these multi, it's multipolar nature that is very little interconnected. And, uh, and for this reason, I think we should create more of these interconnected flows between different universities and recruit much more diversely. Again, I was mentioning that homogeneity or the lack of diversity in networks is most often a vulnerability of the system rather than a strength of it. And how do you even begin to solve that problem? Because if uh, we have that problem of recruitment solely from one place, um, I don't really see how you change it in the very near future so as to recruit from another place, because obviously the other place has a tradition of recruiting from that place and so forth. How do you even begin to solve that problem? Well, that's a very good question. And I think, first of all, you need to offer competitive differentiating programs that people would want to learn and study. Second, you need very strong partnerships, I think, also with the private sector and basically the employability thing 
because students will come wherever they find opportunity, both to study, but as well as to have a living and maybe even live in that. So as a, as a county or as a city, you can become more competitive if you strengthen your relationships and you, you ensure that their integration on the job market is smooth and quick. Um, um, so yeah, I think these, these two would be the two uh, key actions that we can do short term, really short term actually, in order to check whether this strategy works uh, and also to ensure long-term effects. So deploying the start of a very distinct brand within the academic network could actually solve that problem. Uh, that even includes just starting a new program, that even includes just creating any differentiating factor that would make you very clearly stand out from the crowd. But that brings me to another thing, um, and that's how academia has evolved over the years and its role nowadays, because I feel like nowadays the academia in general is not attempting to change too many things and just being as conservative as possible, just not trying things for the sake of not breaking things. And I think that's a very, very different approach from when we had the beginnings of the internet uh, with TCP IP uh, and so forth from that era where innovation was at the forefront of everything and academia was the thing in the whole uh, network of the world. Now, especially given education that is digital, which you can find on YouTube or uh, MOOCs or um, a lot of places that just maybe uh, have actual experts that have actual experience such as you uh, in the field that they teach. Um, I'm not sure academia is as properly equipped, maybe I'm wrong, but what role and what impact does it have nowadays in this larger ecosystem of education? Unfortunately, there are huge disparities across the world and obviously the universities that benefit from large private endowments have the opportunity to be at the forefront of innovation and societal impact, whereas most of the others do not have the luxury. And for many universities is still, um, you know, making ends meet and offering the uh, minimal type of requirements in order for them to function. Um, it's also a cultural trend that, you know, I think um, in, in, in the latest, let's say, 10 years more than, I don't know which other part of history as of now, there's this uh, huge anti-intellectualism culture um, that just goes against experts, against uh, expertise, against science. Um, and that was also obviously propagated through social media as well. And uh, there's scientific work showing why and uh, uh, yeah, showing like what are the mechanisms by which we are actually propagating more false information and unreliable information than truthful information. Um, so unfortunately we are uh, there. It is however my absolutely firm conviction that universities have a very important and unique role to play in society in policy making, in employability, in innovation, in ecosystem resilience, in absolutely everything. And they should be the perfect in-betweeners. 
the perfect uh, organizations that innovate in a different way. What we need to do in order to do that, at least in Romania, the way I see it so far, is obviously you have to dare a lot and you have to be patient with creating a culture where this is happening because it is not there and it's hard to build it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and it is not supported infrastructurally speaking. I mean, let's remember that in Roma Romania uh, invests the, the least amount of money into research altogether, right? And into creating the infrastructure, 0.48% of GDP, which is in inf like it's extremely little, right? So there's no incentive to sustain these systematic, long-ranging um, types of activities that involve, let's say, the quintuple helium uh, approach, where you have these healthy relationships, productive relationships, held together by universities in society. But there are efforts into this direction. There are examples of good practice. Um, I think, however, it need, uh, yeah, they need systematic support. You need to build capacity within these networks, right? Because the problem with the in-betweener is that if it doesn't, uh, uh, if it doesn't have this supportive ecosystem around it, it can burn out. You can only sustain these efforts on a very limited period of time, until that particular actor collapses under the pressure, collapses under the uh, amount of work that they need solely to do to keep things together, right? If there are no systematic ways of investing into building capacity around that node, the system will break. And where you had this, you know, opportunity of holding an ecosystem together, now there's only islands, disconnected islands that do not communicate anymore. And then to, again, also network theory tells us, it is a huge amount of effort involved into bringing or bridging What would the actual support of the bridger? What would be the very first thing that you would need to to create an ecosystem of support to make sure that the bridger doesn't burn out? What would be the first thing? It's funds. I think it's funds. So having and honestly more than just the typical type of four-year grant. Why? Because having uh, obviously you're working with people right so people in order for people to be focused and help out in this mission and be engaged and create value and all of that you have to value their time as well and their effort right because at the end of the day they will choose what is best for them right if you i mean there's only that much that people can volunteer for Right? So if you don't systematically cool. engage people into these efforts, it will the, the energy, the uh, interest will wither off, and that's absolutely normal to happen. So I think we need money to invest in systematic approaches to, to these things. We need frameworks that are co-created with different types of stakeholders uh, in order for everybody to be on the same page about this. Uh, we need to build a culture of trust and the safe space around collaboration, uh, because otherwise uh, it will be the forever office politics type of thing, type of thing, and everybody will run for you know uh, positions rather than actual roles within these projects. Um, 
so yeah investment long-term investment into this and uh, i i'm a firm believer that this investment doesn't have to come from just one source it can come from whatever source as long as um as there is systematic engagement with it but you do need long rather longer term type of uh, financing funding for these in order to build capacity interesting just to connect it with what we earlier said it is not just the investment per se it's also the mechanism that the mechanism that is behind the investment the trust that you show that you are able to change and you are you will be a pioneer of change because for the whole process of the governance to actually allocate money it also means that it's allocating trust in whatever it is that you're doing which is maybe an even more important thing than the actual money but the mechanism behind the process of allocating money is also designating a lot of trust towards that uh, individual or that uh, organization or that uh, node in the network. Um, just one last thing before we uh, go towards uh, the end of this conversation. Where do you see academia in the future? So say 15 years from now. Uh, how does the world look and how does academia fit into the world? In my view, so like scientists and social scientists especially have never been more relevant than they are today. Never in the history and never more powerful or empowered as we are now. And I look at myself simply as, you know, a kid coming from a small town in Romania, being able to really affect change with the things that I'm working on. And what are the things that I'm working on? science and curiosity and asking questions and working with data i mean this is something that anybody can do right so but if it, if that is the context in which the new generations uh, um, are socialized in with the types of problems that my daughter's generation faces then i hope that academia could be at the forefront of stopping climate change Doing innovation in sustainability and sustainable development goals by 2030 would be, uh, um, would would yeah would absolutely have academia in at the forefront of that, um, um, and even the spin-offs that come from university work into businesses. Obviously, it's not imaginable to that you know all businesses will be coming from science, but uh, everything that is technology related innovation related, uh, you know, related to social impact, circular economy, uh, social entrepreneurship, all of that. I mean, these are stuff that can come, ideas that can be supported by universities and come from, uh, from intellectual work, uh, systematic work, uh, validated work. Um, and hopefully that will be the case for about in the next 15 years. That you're completely, completely right, and I fully agree with your perspective on that. And uh, I do hope that that will be the future uh, where academia will uh, that academia the role that academia will play in the future. But before we wrap this out, I have one last question for you, and that is: in the ecosystem that you operate in, if you could, without question, remove just one barrier, one boundary that's holding your ecosystem back. What would that be and why? <sighs> Difficult question. One boundary that I would remove. 
would be uh, one of the uh, recurrent boundaries that I find is uh, are actually coming from within that people do not trust themselves or do not you know do not believe I think that's the word do not believe in themselves do not believe in change being possible I actually come from my hometown sociologically speaking has been measured as being the the, the, the town with the worst <laughs> Uh, belief in uh, things being able to get better so if we are able to for some I don't know what kind of reason just believe that things can get better I think we will be able to do that because nobody knows right we don't get born with knowing all the solutions to the stuff but working together we can find solutions to probably everything and anything but if we don't believe in ourselves, we will always give up before we even start. We will never give credit to others. We will never give enough trust in others to invest, to, you know, to do the extra work uh, in order to make change happen. So that would be one of the barriers that I would love to remove. And why? Well, because oh, I think I <laughs> mentioned it. That's a thing that I was have thought of and I was not expecting that answer at all uh, just how would that first look like because uh, to enact that change uh, I, I don't think you can even really measure that maybe I may be very wrong about it but how do you even enact the change of people believing in themselves mm. Well, education is, uh, well, no, nah, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't generalize that way because even education has a lot of limitations. I think role models or, or uh, putting uh, examples, making them available for people to get inspired, showing them that there's a different way. I think that has, plays a lot uh, because, you know, currently the system continues to tell you you're not good enough, you're not da 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 da. Uh, but then if you see other people around you making it, if you have candid and open talks with people about failure and success and how you know you, you made it and how things like that, I think those are always good inspiration. Um, hopefully education would be one way through which you can do this systematically and, and teach kids skills for, uh, for um, uh, yeah, trusting in themselves and, and having these transversal, skills that would allow them to uh, be successful in almost anything that they do. Um, and then uh, investing in activities. Like, for example, I'm, I'm really proud of what uh, my former student Rebecca and Ella and uh, the group at the Superhumans Romania do, which is they have uh, the talks about mental health with communities in, in Timisoara, but they reach more than 1,500,000 people uh, already with their content because it's clear that the safe spaces that they provide around understanding our humanity in a world that doesn't value that anymore um, is a comeback, I think, of these skills that empowers people long term. So if we are able to support these kinds of movements, um, we should be fine. <laughs> well, on the note of role models, I feel more more than lucky i feel exceptionally grateful that we have you and i'm exceptionally grateful for you having been a role model also in my life and uh enacting the change that uh 
we so desperately require and being there and just being a beacon of hope and change in the ecosystem that we find ourselves in. And on that note, last question of the day, where can people find you and where would you like to send people? Well, thank you, uh, Andrei. This is very nice to, um, you know, it's uh, for me, it's always an inspiration to meet people like you and to have met you actually as well, because you are unique in your ecosystem as well. And I appreciate that and I have high hopes <laughs> for what you will be able to, uh, um, yeah, the change that, that you'll be able to exert around you as well. Um, second, um, you know how the uh, shoemaker doesn't have shoes kind of thing. I have a website that is very hard to find, <laughs> but I will send you the link to that. But I was thinking um, one way that I think, yeah, I mean, there are many resources that I could recommend to you, but maybe one that I was thinking is really uh, going into the ideas of data and ecosystems and rethinking stuff is the Atlas of Economic Complexity, and I will leave you the links for that. What I, why I love this tool is that it's basically a big data visualization platform where you look at, um, you know, data about like the economies of different countries, which is not necessarily that exciting, but what is exciting is that these people, the Ricardo Hausmann and Cesar Hidalgo and the people who worked on this project, basically redefined how we view economies, not from a GDP point of view, but from a product ecosystem, product and service ecosystem, which allowed us to also think about innovation in terms of economic progress in completely different ways than we've been looking at before that. So I think it's a very good showcase of how the network approach can shift your perspective of how you view complex ecosystems and what you can do with them. But also the idea of visualizing data, I think, is really just, if you're a curious person, you're going to have fun like a kid in a candy shop, you know, <laughs> with, this, um, with this thing. You can, you can check out, you know, gender gaps in payment, <laughs> you know, all sorts of like really interesting things related, you know, to education and whatnot. Um, healthcare, so it's, it's really, uh, yeah. Without data, we don't know, and I'm a big proponent that uh, we use uh, data in order to do data-driven, evidence-based decision-making, even in our personal lives and in our professional lives. And then I would send you to, if you're really interested in, in what network science is and how it works out, just Google network science. It, there's a huge amount of literature on that, games, and you know, even for children and, and whatnot. But the handbook, the handbook at the moment for science is Barabashi's, uh, Albert Laszlo Barabashi's book, Network Science. It's, it, it's an online uh, book, open access book. It's really nice. It's also heavily mathematical just for you to <laughs> get the reality check that, <laughs> you know, it's all fun and games with uh, bubbles <laughs> But it's still like a heavy science uh, grounded in mathematics and statistics and physics and computer science and biology and sociology. <laughs> but it's really fascinating yeah well we'll have all of that linked down below in the description thank you so 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 much sylvia for being here and thank you for listening see you soon you've been listening to the audacious ecosystem the show where you learn together what it takes to make an interesting great from the leaders in your organizations around us <laughs>